I am trying to log into Amazon right now, but yeah. uh, it's not taking my password. I think my wife might have changed it. Darrow Hearts Mustang four ever. Yeah, it used to be three. Maybe now it's four. <laughs> three ever. Now it's three four ever. ever. <laughs> <laughs> this is stupid. <laughs> We're doing this taking. Okay, this is taking too long. Let's just do this. Okay, ready. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hail Reaper. My name is Philip, and this is my good friend, Jeremy. What is going on? What's up, bro? How you doing? I'm doing good. We're doing a night podcast right now, which we never do. No, we're usually off our game in, at night. So <laughs> we're like dads. So this is like really <laughs> hard to do because we're really tired. Yeah, my eyelids are heavy. So that's the downside for recording at night. 8.45 is like basically midnight. <laughs> it's pretty pathetic. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. It's bad times. So we're recording this in retrospect because we already did a few Saturdays ago an interview with the makers of the Red Rising board game. I was not a part of that conversation, but you and Mathar were the hosts of that episode. Uh, I wasn't available, but I was really excited to hear it. I just heard it this morning. It was really good. We had a phenomenal conversation. I mean, the team that came on from Stonemeyer were just fantastic. We already know Miles from the general community, mm -hmm. but we just had a killer conversation about the board game and, and we're all really excited to get that board game in our hands. Also, shout out to Jackie Davis and Justin Wong. They helped with the art design and art direction of the Red Rising board game. So if you hear references to Jackie or Justin, that's because they were also deeply involved in the making of the game. So let's get to it. Hey, I'm Jamie Stickmeyer. I am the president at Stonemeyer Games, and I am the co-designer of Red Rising, the board game. Hi, I'm Alex Schmidt, and I am the director of sales at Stonemeyer Games. And along with Jamie, I am also the co-designer of Red Rising. I'm Miles Bensky. I am just one of the three artists that contributed to the different levels of art to the Red Rising board game. Jamie, why don't we just start with you? Take us through a general timeline. Talk to us about how you secured the IP from Pearson team and generally how you developed the game. And then maybe you can throw it to each of your teammates and allow them to kind of talk about where they came into the process. Yeah, definitely. I guess the short version of it is I originally read the first Red Rising book in 2014. I believe I read the second book when it came out in 2015. And when I did, I contacted Pierce. At the time, I had published a few games. I designed a few games. And I reached out to Pierce and I said, you know, I, I love this series. I would love to design a game in this world. And at the time, I believe the, the series was wrapped up in either film or TV rights. And it wasn't available for, for the tabletop rights weren't available. And so I circled back in 2017 after my company had grown a little bit and after I hoped that since I hadn't seen a film or TV come out in the Red Rising world, that, that the rights might be available. And at that time, they were. And Pierce and his literary agent gave me their blessing to try to work on a game. I then tried many times over the next year to design what I thought would be a game that would do justice to the Red Rising world and characters. And I failed time after time. 
And eventually I put out a video to the world saying, hey, I love this series. I, I want to publish a game in this world, but I can't figure it out. And so I had some other designers submit designs to me. None of them quite felt right. And then a year later in the spring of uh, 2018, I believe, maybe 2019, somewhere around there, 2019, Alex and I were playing a game called Fantasy Realms, a light filler game, that, that excellent light filler game at my game night. And something just clicked that we thought that a similar mechanism from that game would work really well in the Red Rising game. And so we ended up working together on that. We eventually got the full rights from Pierce, the full tabletop rights. And we are publishing the game with a pre-order coming up soon and the retail release in a few months. You actually referenced that YouTube video that you released, uh, I believe, April of 2018. It's such an earnest video, and it's great to see the publisher just admit that defeat and really just reach out to the community in that way. Uh, it's something you don't see very often. So I, I, we do commend you for that. I think that's incredible. And I was wondering, Alex, how you fit into that puzzle, because I didn't know at the time that you were actually uh, in sales for the, for the publisher. So I was wondering if you were the call out from the video that, that reached out to Jamie, but it sounds like that wasn't the case, that instead, I think it was through Fantasy Realms. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Jamie and I had been friends since uh, 2016, I think, is when we first met. And so I like had been regularly going to his weekly game night, which, of course, is currently on hiatus because of uh, the pandemic. But I'd been going to his weekly game night, and I wasn't the director of sales for Stonemaier at the time. That's only happened a few months ago, actually. But like I, I saw the video when Jamie first put it out, and I'd dabbled in game design. I hadn't had anything published. Red Rising is my first published game. But Jamie and I had have frequently uh, talk about like game design and the elements of games when we're playing them. And so we talked about the, the Red Rising conundrum a few times and like how the issue where there's the 14 colors and wanting to, to really show all 14 colors and how hard that is in most games. You don't want, uh, in a tabletop game, you don't want 14 different resources or whatever you want to refer to them as. But with Fantasy Realms, like we were playing it and realized Fantasy Realms has uh, 10 different suits of cards, which is you know, huge compared to, you know, a normal deck of cards having four, four suits, but it worked. And so if that worked with Fantasy Realms, why couldn't we do that with Red Rising? Jamie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the mechanics you were trying before was a deck building mechanic. So what was it about Fantasy Realms and kind of noticing with Alex that it had 10 suits that kind of made that mechanic maybe the revisit work? Yeah, it's largely a matter of perspective. So in some of the previous versions of the game, I tried two core mechanisms. I tried worker placement with different meeples of 14 different colors that you're placing on the board and activating different actions. And I tried bag building where you had bag building and deck building, where you had cards that were different colors or that you had meeples that were different colors that you were pulling from a bag. And for both of them, some of the mechanisms were fine, but it felt a Every time I playtested, I felt distant from the world. I felt like I was looking down on this world of Red Rising instead of existing in it and being immersed in it. And there was just something different when we were playing, playing Fantasy Realms. And as we started to explore that Fantasy Realms mechanism of using cards as characters, where I didn't necessarily feel like a character in the world, but a, a few specific characters would mean a lot to me at any given moment in the game. And through that, we explored the idea of, of all the wonderful characters and their personalities in Red Rising and the different the difficult decisions they have to make in terms of who they befriend, who they betray. That, to me, is what is the heart of the Red Rising books. And I, that really started to come through once we focused on just a small hand of characters 
that were either going to be yours at the end of the game, your final crew that you stuck with, versus those that you got rid of during the game because they weren't right for you. And speaking, I think, of all those amazing cards and colors, I think that's a great segue. Miles, I want to throw it to you. Where did you come in in the process? Because I'm, I'm actually really curious as to how you they reached out to you and, and things like that. Yeah, so I came actually later in the art process. So Justin Wong had done an amazing job establishing doing, you know, there's 112 cards. He did the vast majority of the card des- character designs for that. Similar to Alex, I met Jamie about a year before that. I had I, I approached him about to do some playtesting for Scythe, actually. And then from there, volunteered to help at one of the big conventions or board game conventions at Gen Con. And so that's how I first met Jamie. And then for a number of reasons, we started going, my family started going to St. Louis. And so I did not as regularly, but would go and do some of the game nights at Jamie's. And so I, I knew him from that. He actually had started seeing me try to get back into art. This is something I had not done for a long time. And just a couple of years ago, I won some art for a game I was designing and got into digital art. And so he had seen me kind of working on this. And right at the beginning of the pandemic, I decided to really focus on character designs as just something to do with my extra free time at home. And at the time, I was really into Red Rising, was listening to HowlerPod and getting into that community and just the Facebook community and, and was just playing around. And so some of my earlier Instagram stuff was just me playing around with character design. I think Jamie saw that and saw there was an opportunity for me to maybe help out with the game. And so I actually came in, my first uh, project was to do the house cards for the different, for, the, for some of the asymmetry in the game. And so taking some of the sigils that were already established and then just designing the cards. And then later on, I got some other tasks like helping out with um, some of the characters and then doing the backs of the cards. That was my other kind of contribution to the game. So Miles, I guess keeping on art, did you work with Justin and Jackie pretty directly or, or how did you guys coordinate between those efforts? So Justin really did the vast majority of the stuff. Or so I didn't work directly with Justin at all. He had already kind of established the general look. And again, did for almost, I, I in terms of characters, I only did gold characters. So all the other non-gold characters, except for I think one, I think Jackie ended up doing one silver character all on her own. That was all Justin. All the credit goes to him doing an amazing job for that. I came in just there were some characters that needed to be done as the timeline towards the end started finishing up and Justin had other projects he was working on and so I came and helped with that and then Jackie was the person who made the cohesive coloring scheme for the whole entire game and so I all I did was design the actual sketches for these gold characters and then she came and, and colored over them and made them look cohesive with Justin's art. Miles we're big fans of yours I know you're heavily integrated into the fandom as I said and we're just really enjoying all the card reveals as we're going along. Our Discord community for Hail Reaper is just digging in and, and giving a lot of those cards love. So awesome job. Fantastic art. It's a gorgeous game. It really is. And Stonemeyer games are, are always gorgeous. Alex, I want to jump back to you. I think I forgot where I heard it. I was, I think, surfing YouTube and I came across something that kind of led to me to believe that maybe there was not a lot of playtesting needed or that it kind of worked on maybe even the first go around. Can you talk about the playtesting process and what that looked like and how long that took? Yeah, so there was definitely still a lot of playtesting. I think Jamie can tell me for sure, but I think it was <laughs> six or seven rounds of versions of the games going out to groups of playtesters and them all playing it several times and giving us feedback and then us going back and making adjustments based on that and then testing our adjustments before going back out to them. What was specifically unique is usually the first time you make a prototype for a game, 
it's going to like break really badly. You probably won't get through an entire playthrough of the game because you'll have these ideas, you put them down on paper, then you make all the, the pieces for it, hopefully doing it as, as easily and simply and cheaply as possible because you know it's going to break. And then you test it, and then you see what does and doesn't work, and then you fix it to make it actually work. Um, the first time with Red Rising, though, like Jamie and I, we sat together at uh, lunch somewhere back when you had restaurants, <laughs> and uh, like we just we talked uh, through everything we were going to do, and then we sort of uh, split up the work. I did the first pass on most of the card abilities. Jamie did the first pass on putting together all the components, and then we uh, came back together with Alan. Jamie's a, a co-owner of Stonemaier Games, and the three of us play tested it and. Like it worked. We played all the way through. Like it wasn't a hundred percent balanced by any means, and there were definitely things that we changed. Uh, for example, in that playtest, the starting hand was seven cards rather than five, but the core essence of everything just worked and was fun. And that's a very unusual for a first playtest. If I can jump in here, uh, I want to hear from Jamie. After having spent, forgive me, I don't remember how long it was. I know you said it was a while that you spent uh, trying to. You went through four iterations of uh, mechanics before realizing you just didn't have it. What was it like playing through the game for the first time, finishing and realizing that it worked? It, it felt amazing. There was this great sense of relief because I, I I wanted for so long to bring this game to reality and just to have a version of it that worked and was fun and to uh, to have that come together. It, I guess come together isn't quite the right word, but like Alex described, to have a functional first prototype that was actually fun is unheard of for for me in general as a designer, much less for the Red Rising game. So that that was amazing. There are many other barriers that that we still had to overcome, especially like officially getting the rights and things like that. But just to have a playable game that was fun in the Red Rising world was amazing. Yeah, I bet. I I spent some time playtesting mostly tabletop role-playing games that I've designed myself, not for publication, but for creating worlds and, and homebrewing mechanics and things like that. And just even dipping my toes in that water, it's it could be a nightmare. So I can't imagine the elation you must have felt. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. And and like Alex mentioned, there was still a lot that followed that, to a lot of local playtesting, a lot of local discussions between Alex and I to figure out sure. how to make the design work as, as best as possible. And we were almost gifted with extra time because of the, the legal process of getting the rights. And so normally we'll do like three or four waves of blind playtesting where we send out digital files to playtesters around the world and they test it. But we just had extra time for Red Rising. And so every, even though we normally it would stop then, we were just like, you know, we have an extra month at least. Let's do another wave. And then we did another wave and another wave. So we really honed down uh, the abilities in the game wave after wave. So it was nice to have something that we normally wouldn't have, but given that the, the IP took a little extra time, it worked out. Jamie, Stonemeyer has gorgeous aesthetic and art. And I think with a game like Scythe, if I'm correct, it maybe was a backward kind of element where you drew the game a lot out of the artwork from what I hear. But you look at Wingspan, you look at Tapestry, you look at Viniculture. These games are just absolutely beautiful. I don't know if you hire amazing artists or if you have some sort of creative control over the art process. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I, I, I am essentially the creative art director at Stonemaier Games, but I think that the key to that puzzle is just hiring really talented people who know their stuff. 
And one of the wonderful th aspects of that for Red Rising in particular, with working in, with Justin and Miles, Jackie was wonderful to work with, really wonderful. Jackie hadn't read the books, but Justin and Miles were big fans of the books. And so usually with art direction, I reach out to the artists and I have to describe every little aspect of a character if I'm building, if I'm spe specifying a character to that artist. Like you said, with Psy, that was the opposite. I was building a game from an existing world that I was growing together with the artist. But with Miles and Justin, instead of having to go character by character through Red Rising and saying, this is where the scars go, this is the color of their hair, things like that, Miles and Justin know the world so well that it was really easy to work with them and say, hey, I, I need art for Severo, draw Severo. I didn't have to describe him in detail. So that was really cool to work with Miles and Justin in that way. Were you impressed by like how fervent some of the people that you got involved with it were for the material? I, I can imagine that in the world of design, you are going to find people that are like, oh, I'm really passionate about the work that I do and I'm a master of my craft, but I, I'm going to have to brush up on this. Was it interesting? To, I think what I found where this question is coming from is <laughs> as I've gotten more into the world of Red Rising, I'm just shocked at how many people in my network or coming out of the woodwork, oh, you know about that book too? Or people that are into it are extremely passionate about the source material. And I've not been, I think, at this, like at the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, for a fandom ever before. I've always gotten into stuff after it's kind of made its way down the pipeline. It's got a TV show that's coming out. I tend to hear about that stuff or I'm into something that just never takes off. So I find that like I, I started getting into this at a point where like, I can sense that it's probably going to make its way into the mainstream a lot more and, and seeing the fervor that the fans have for it is really remarkable. So I, I don't know if, if and this could be for anyone, if anyone could speak to like how it felt to know that like, all right, yeah, I picked the right thing to work on, obviously. No, I, I think, um, that, I think that's one of the things that when I was starting to do the fan art, I definitely was recognizing that. And it is in this, it's, it's in this nice sweet spot as someone who's just wanted to do some fan art because we don't have a show yet. We don't have this, canon in terms of exactly how these characters look like right. there is official art lots of people haven't seen that official art or have their own their own versions and so you know i can come up with something and you know put it out there and people be you know sometimes people are like that's not at all what that person looks like to me but a lot of times they'll be like that's exactly how it looks like or that or this is now how i'm going to like view this character and that's really cool as an artist and it's and it is because it's not it's like on that precipice of becoming more well-known. So I think that's really cool about this IP. Yeah, that's one, one of the fun things about choosing an IP like this. Really, there are I haven't considered many IPs because I don't love many as much as I love Red Rising. I, I love some of the major IPs, but I, I don't need to design another Star Wars game or another Lord of the Rings game, even though I love those worlds. But it has been really fun to see people, like you said, come out of the woodwork who love Red Rising, just I haven't seen them talk about it in the gaming world. And it's been fun to see people who have followed Stillmire Games for a long time, who are discovering the books for the first time. That was one of my major objectives for making this game, that I wanted to invite more people into the Red Rising world. And I'm hoping that we can also invite Red Rising fans who haven't played many modern board games, hope we can invite them into the gaming world through this game. So I hope it goes both ways in those regards. That's like, I mean, the reason I'm even into the, into the world at all is because of Jamie's first video. Like that's when I first heard about it. And so he definitely has brought in a lot of people into this world just from both like both his failure <laughs> and also now his success in uh, making making these games i think is really cool definitely just the the passion like someone having passion about something makes you curious about it and that's that definitely has i think that's true like jamie said both ways going from the book to gaming and also from gaming to the book uh, the book series and and that's really exciting to see as a designer i didn't interact as much with other 
individuals about it because Jamie, as the the president of Stonemaier Games, was manages all of those different pieces. So Miles was working with Jamie. Like I, I know Miles. I'm friends with Miles, but we didn't interact about this project very much. On the flip side, as the director of sales uh, over the last few weeks since the game has been announced, it's been really interesting to see um, across the different retailers and distributors that I work with how very 50-50 it is, how some of them have no idea what the IP is. And they're like, okay, it's an IP. What does that mean for this game? I don't know. And then there's others who are like, oh, I love that book, or my wife loves that book. And it's not just in the US, but it's like throughout the world. So like uh, my South African, our South African distributor is really excited about the game because they're all big fans of the books already. So their entire company are like, we all want to buy this regardless of who else we sell it to. <laughs> and and you just, that's really cool to see and not something you usually see with a new game. I think you guys are talking about passion and I think that's a, a fantastic direction to go. Our Patreon Discord community was actually really interested in each of your answers to this because it's one thing to have people passionate and draw them into a board game, but for you guys to dedicate yourselves and give all the time to designing and to playtesting and for the artwork and all that kind of stuff, it's like you guys have to initially have that passion. So what is it about the series? What is it about Red Rising in particular that drew you each in? Alex, you want to kick that off? Sure. So for me, uh, funny story, I had not um, read all of Red Rising before Jamie and I like started talking about this project. I'd read the first chapter of the first book. And as everyone knows, the the story changes drastically after you get a few chapters in. But I read this first chapter. I was like, uh, this is kind of just depressing. I'm not sure if I want to deal with this. So I, I actually put the book away uh, and left it. And so then when this project came up, I, I went back to it and I completely fell in love with the books. Cannot wait for book six at this point. Mm. But I think what really drew me in specifically um the second time attempting to read it was just the way that all of the characters have have depth and they can be people can be good people without being well still having shades of gray mm. so you don't have like darrow like he's a protagonist but there are bad things about him and good things about him but you have a sense he's trying to do the same the the good thing and at the same time let's prove everyone else like you don't have any um you know darth vader emperor palpatines who are just evil and trying to, to ruin things they think what they're doing is right and that makes for really compelling interesting characters throughout I completely agree. I mean, Pierce does have an amazing skill, and we talk about that quite a bit, where he is able to write just very kind of nuanced and complex characters, like you're pointing out. And there is a lot of gray area, because they're not really, like, they don't have clean hands, but they aren't, like, really bad guys either. That's a great call out. Jamie, what what, what about you? I mean, there's a lot of things. I love the world building. The, the plot of every book's, book has hooked me in, books one through five. And I the characters in general, yeah, the characters are a big part of it for me. Their personalities, their relationships, their, their, their and and their, the decisions they have to make. But the thing that I think elevates it, I mean, there, there are other books that have those elements, world building, characters, great plot, great story. But there's an extra level, specifically with Darrow, but some other leaders in the books as well, that goes down to the gray area that both of you have mentioned. And often in times of tough decisions that leaders have to make. And Darrow just makes some, to me, some fascinating leadership decisions. Like Alex said, they're not always right. They're not always wrong. But I, I love how Darrow tries to be the best leader that he can be. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's this one moment in the first book that has stuck with me forever because it it's like an excruciating decision that Darrow makes that I haven't seen any other author, author make a decision that bold when Darrow makes this decision in the books. 
I don't know what your policy is on, on spoilers. I don't, I'm really hesitant to say <laughs> Book it, one spoilers are acceptable, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. You can spoil okay. book one. Go for it. Book one. It, it's, it's just a moment where he, I think he essentially whips someone and that then he invites that same character or no, maybe he invites Pax to, to yes, whip him Pax. back. And it's just, it was like, he didn't have to ask for him to whip him back, but I can see why he did that. And that, that, I don't know, that, that blew me away that Pierce built that into the story. Such an essential moment, I think, to Tactus, which is a, a big yeah. topic of one of our, I think at this point, recent episodes of Hail Reaper. So yeah, it was a super defining moment. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, he had his back made uh, into chewed goat meat is what he said. So I don't know why he invited that to your point, Jamie. <laughs> Tasty. <laughs> Miles. <laughs> Talking about chewed goat meat, Miles, what, what drew you into the series? <laughs> I think so very similar with Alex. I think just the characters and the, the everyone living in this kind of gray morality, uh, you know, everyone has these positives and negatives and they're constantly trying to combat them obviously Darrow's constantly trying to work through all these these conflicting sides I just found that really intriguing and honestly so when when I learned about the IP um, from Jamie I I wanted to know nothing about the the book so I I immediately got the book and just started reading I had no idea really what was going on and that moment where in book one where it just opens up and Dancer shows Mm -hmm. Darrow the world that was such a like a moment for me where I just like was not expecting it at the time it just really like got me really invested it's like this whole switch in the world and then and from that point on just like all the moments i just loved after that and and then also honestly just the fandom just the community online being a part of that has really like made me more and more dedicated it's like i've never been so reinforced to like go back especially like, um iron gold i was like i liked it but wasn't like as excited and i just went through it again and i found like i loved it the so i've never been as much reinforced to reread a book and learn nuances as I have with this series, and I've just really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, I'd you have just to... won Jeremy over right now. <laughs> he totally did. No, Miles, <laughs> I have to agree with you because I, I, we've said it on the podcast, but when we came into the scene, Philip and I, we kind of felt like maybe we were going to have to elbow in a little bit. No disrespect to any fandoms, but this one truly is the best. The people in this are incredible people and the most welcoming you'll ever meet. And I'm sure that was your experience as well as what, what you're saying there, Miles. Yeah, totally. I think everyone's very encouraging. That's it's hard not to want to do more fan art when people are just super excited and constantly telling you to do more. It's like it, you just get caught up in it, and I love that. And people are even when people are like, "Oh, that's not really how I thought." They're not. They're not jerks about it. They're just like, "I really like this, but like it's just not how I saw it." And they'll point things out, or if I miss a detail. So one of the one I always think of now is Aja. I miss that her eyes are like cat eyes mm-hmm. the first time I drew her. And so now it's something I'm always thinking about. But again, it's just people are so into the world and so into the details. I really enjoy that about 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 the fans. The the little details like that that Miles, I, I hadn't heard that story about Aja, but late in the process of putting the art together, Miles did notice that, that some of the scars were on the wrong side of the face, I think, based on how my how our awesome graphic designer had flipped the art to make it fit better on the cards. Mm-hmm. And Miles pointed that out. So just those little details are amazing mm-hmm. that the fans of Red Rising notice. So Jamie, when you were talking about what drew you in, you brought up the point of spoilers. And I think that's a really good question for this board game because people are at different points of these books. They may be uh, done with the first trilogy and, and starting the second, they may be done with everything or still have Dark Age. But when it comes to the card designs and the characters you guys are incorporating, Will it have spoilers? Because between like trilogy one and two, you have even societal like title changes. I'm trying to do this without spoiling it as well. 
And then you have like inclusion of additional characters. So how does that work? The approach that we took, because I really did want to welcome people into the Red Rising world without spoiling anything, was to stay away from plot points and focus just on the characters and oftentimes focus on the characters by a name that they're well known as in the first book. Yeah, there, there are a number of decisions that we made with the names, but we tried to pick like the most common name that is used throughout the books and not something, like you said, that uh, if there's a, like a title change, we, we wouldn't go with something that would happen later in the books. Alex, can you think of any specific things that, that we did to avoid with like the names to avoid spoilers? Can't think of anything offhand. Yeah, so I think it, we were pretty, it was pretty easy to be safe with... Uh... Yeah, like you said, with spoilers, we want, you know, mostly with first names. And um, there is there is one specific card. So there is a red card called Arliss. And if you hadn't haven't don't know what that's about, it's not a spoiler. But if you do know what it's about, it's a nice little Easter egg. And there's another card that people might expect a gold card that doesn't exist for the reason of that name. So Miles, with and this is for the deep fandom, but uh, you didn't happen to spoil anything by giving like certain damage to faces or anything like that to any of the card characters, right? No, I don't think. Yeah, I think. I mean, at least keeping it within that first trilogy, I don't think there's anything. So Jackal, I have him playing around with this puzzle, and he's playing around with his left hand, and you can't see his right hand, but you can either assume that he's not shown or that it's cut off. So there's something where I would say it's a little bit ambiguous, but to me, when I drew it, he, he doesn't have that right hand. But again, you'd have to know that. So I don't think that's maybe not as much of a spoiler, but he does have the scar, so it should be, it is after, it is post-Institute. So he should not have one hand for sure. I like that. I like that. It's an Easter egg and it's kind of overt, so you wouldn't even know to look for it. That's cool. One of my favorite Easter eggs is, if you look at Tactus, it's very subtle, but if you look at what's behind him in the silhouette, it's related to, well, I guess maybe the second books. I won't say, it's not a spoiler, but it's just related, it's, it's related to him. That's definitely something I think fan, fans will either maybe notice or, or might not. It's pretty subtle in terms of what the object is behind him. I am on Team Tactus. I'm a huge fan and I love the card. So very well done on that one. Awesome. Going back to the game in general, and anyone can jump in and field this, but uh, Stonemeyer has, what, Automa Factory? Is that, is that how you say that? Yeah, Automa, Automa Factory. Yeah, either way. It's, it, it doesn't seem incredibly prevalent in the tabletop world. Is that, I don't think it's exclusive, however, but can you talk to how that was incorporated and what that really is? Because especially in the pandemic world right now, I think a lot of us are kind of sitting at home wishing we could play our board games in a one-player mode. Yeah, I've, I've worked with a guy named Morton over in Denmark for seven years now. Morton has been a solo gamer for most of his adult life. Which might sound lonely to people who don't play games, uh, board, tabletop games, but it's Really, playing a game solo on the tabletop is, is really no different than playing a, a video game or a mobile game. You're generally playing just yourself against the AI. And Morton sought to create a feeling of playing against an intelligent opponent on the tabletop without having to go through all the motions of actually having to play for another player who isn't actually there. And so Morton has created this Altama solo mode system that he's applied in different ways to each of our games. And he applied it to, to Red Rising which ended up being a one to six player game. That six player range will be great when we can get back together for game nights. But in the meantime, those that one and two and three player counts will be really, really nice for people who want to play games by themselves or just with uh, their roommate, their significant other. Yeah. So anyone listening, buy this game because you can play by yourself. 
It doesn't matter about COVID. So there you go. <laughs> right. So along with the game, I don't think we've seen the standard version yet, but we've certainly seen a lot of the releases about the collector's edition. And it, like everything else, is just super strong in the component area. I love the the geometric wolf head from the from the first book and how you guys are are housing uh the helium three in it. It's it's there it is right there. It's just awesome how you guys add these things uh, to the game. And one of the fun things about Stonemaier games are the upgrade packs. Are you guys going to be offering an upgrade pack for this game, specifically for the collector's edition, or maybe you're going to save it for the standard? Yeah, so the, the game out of the box uh, that we're selling is the collector's edition. So here, the collector's edition is uh, the, the same exact gameplay as the standard edition. But there's a kind of a nicer insert. There's some card holders. There's gold foil on the gold cards. And there are metal components instead of plastic. And then we have the standard version that will go out around the world to retailers. And even when we sell directly to people, we have fulfillment centers around the world. I know you have listeners around the world. But there, we are also making an upgrade pack for anyone who wants to uh, support, who has a preferred retailer and that doesn't want to buy directly from us. They can buy the retail version and later on they can buy an upgrade pack to get those gold foil cards, get the card holders and get the metal components directly from us at a later date if they want to. And that also helps with price point. They can come in. I think we price them both pretty reasonably, but they can get the retail version a little cheaper and then decide if they love the game and want to enhance it with the upgrade pack later. Have you announced a price point for each yet? We, we haven't. No, we usually save that until the, the pre-order date, but it's okay. in the, the $50 range for the collector's edition. That's good. That's a really good price. Nice. How about expansions? Because that's another kind of side of it. Not only do you have upgrade packs, but you also have expansions. And I know with book six, a lot of us are waiting for that. And with it could come new characters, could come new revelations. Do you guys have plans for an expansion for additional cards that will incorporate anything new that book six reveals? Jamie and I have once or twice just like thrown around an idea or two about an expansion, but we're we've very intentionally been waiting. Like everything, we wanted the the core game to be a, a full complete game, and that's generally our policy, our theory about any game is like when we're doing the the base game, we're not trying to leave things out to add them to the expansion. So we haven't started developing any one or actually like gone into it by any means. But there's definitely a couple of ideas that are rattling around in our heads. I'm definitely waiting for book six too, as a reader and um, as a game designer. So I'll probably read book six and then I'll go back and read book four and five. And then Alex and I will brainstorm some expansions, expansion ideas. So it could be anything like really the, the world is wide open. Hopefully we'll get some great ideas from people who play the, the core game and give us some ideas for what we could do in an expansion. I've seen a couple of videos on how to play the game. So I know a couple of the advanced copies are already in the hands of, uh, of the recipients. So I am 100% sure Pierce already has his copy as well. What kind of feedback have you gotten from him as far as the final iteration of the game? Yeah, over the course of the process, I've tried to really respect Pierce's time as much as possible. I want him to be writing book six or just to be having fun writing the, uh, more <laughs> books in the world. And my job is to, to help design the game, and publish the game. So I've reached out to him at a few key points in the process. I reached out about the box art. I wanted that to be something that, that uh, made him happy. I reached out to him about the release date to see if it coincided or conflicted with a, a book release. And I reached out to him with an early copy. He does have the final copy of the game now. He also got a fancy prototype in September uh, where I wanted him to look through the game. I wanted him to play it and make sure there wasn't anything big that we had done, whether it was art or naming or gameplay that just didn't feel right to him. And he came back and said that he he loved it, that it did fit with, with what he was hoping for a game in the world. Uh, I haven't heard a lot from him actually about the final copy that he has. I Again, I don't want to, to bother him at all. I want him to do his thing. <laughs> But I'm hoping he's enjoying it. I think he's shared a little bit about it on Instagram. Miles, I think that gives you the uh, stamp of approval on your art as well. Does that feel pretty good? 
yeah, whenever Pierce <laughs> chimes in about my art, I definitely uh, smile pretty big. So that's it's it's nice to it's nice to get that feedback. Philip and I were in California. Mathar's over there in Arizona. We're not together. One of the fun things is to play together, and we're really looking forward to it. I know our our Discord community is is really anticipating the release of this. And we all want some way to play together. I know I was looking at some of your other uh, titles and they have uh, digital versions. Is there anything in the works to get this into a digital version? Yeah, we're, we're working on uh, a couple of different digital versions. There's one that'll be on a platform called Tabletopia that is at least the version that we're putting on there on March 1st is free to play. It's not an intelligent system. So it's a kind of a physics driven platform. It looks like a virtual tabletop. And so you will need to know the rules of the game to play the game on that platform. But on March 1st, you can play with anyone around the world using that platform. And then we do have a developer who is starting to work on a full AI digital version, the type of game that you might find on, on a PC or a phone. That will take a while. That is a much bigger programming feat. And that will, I think they're eyeing like late 2022. So quite distant in the future for that. And then there's another platform that hopefully will will hit in between that requires you to have human players, but it is a semi-intelligent platform. So we're hitting three different levels there, but the I guess the most exciting one is that in just uh, what eleven days there will be a digital version that you can play with with anyone. I'm so stoked. I, I'm smiling because I didn't know it was going to be that soon. But you said something, Jamie, talking about thinking about where this game is going to be even all the way at the end of 2022. Right. I guess, what are your final thoughts here? And everybody can actually talk to this a little bit, but what does the future of this game look like? What are you hoping comes out of the, I, I think it's safe to say it's it's probably going to be pretty successful. I mean, fans seem receptive to like all things <laughs> Red Rising. So I, I have a feeling this is going to go over pretty well. What are your hopes for the future of the game? I guess uh, on a few different levels, it's things that I've already mentioned that that I really hope that the game brings more people into the world of Red Rising. I'm already seeing it from the beginning, but I hopefully... When people actually play the game too, if they haven't tried the books yet, they play the game and they'll get curious about these characters and they read the books. I really hope for that. And I hope the reverse of that as well, that if we have Red Rising fans who have not played many modern board games and they try this game and they're like, oh, this is this is actually pretty cool and, and want to try other games that we make or other games by other designers, other publishers, that will be awesome. And then from a business side, we're always looking to make what we call like an evergreen game, again, that we can sell ongoing for years and years and continually reprint it and bring joy to tabletops worldwide. If we can do that, I'll be really happy with what we've done with Red Rising. The more we can share the the joy of games with uh, like Red Rising fans, and more we can share the joy of Red Rising with gaming fans, like I think both of those cross pollinations are just like either both of those happening are just big wins. Like I, I'm sure that the game will sell well enough one way or another. But the more we can just uh, share share the our love and joy of both these things with with individuals, that's where like the real like satisfaction of making this game comes from. And I think we're definitely seeing that. So if you go to the Red Rising board game Facebook group, I actually put a poll pretty early just to see like where people were at in terms of how they did they just hear about the series versus when did they come in? And it was about 50-50. So I mean, there was a lot of people on that group who had never heard of the game until Jamie just announced it or you know heard of the series until Jamie announced it. And so I think that's really cool. And then to see from the Facebook Red Rising fan groups, Anytime I see anyone post about it, there's a lot of excitement about the games. And so I think, yeah, I think we're seeing evidence of that cross-pollination already, which is really cool to see. We're super excited to get it in our hands. I definitely want to be respectful of everyone's time. Uh, I know everyone has more of a life than I probably do. Uh, so let's just kind of throw it, uh, Jamie, to you. Uh, let's give you some final thoughts and, and maybe just talk about the future of the game and, and what comes next. 
right now I'm eagerly anticipating the reviews that will come out for the game. So the early, you've said there are a few videos out there, but the reviews will start to come out next week. I'm always a little nervous about that. But I, I love how the game plays. I, I've played the final version with four players in a small bubble, and I played it with, with my girlfriend, two players. And it's the type of game where we, we played it once and then we wanted to play it right again, right away again. And we did play it right away again to build just a new hand of cards. And every there's such a big stack of character cards that I love that we'll play a game and we'll have seen maybe half of those characters and we get to go through and play a game with completely new characters thanks to the wonderful art that, that Miles and Justin and Jackie put together. So... I'm excited as a player to play this game, and I'm excited to bring it to people who want to learn about the game and want to learn more about the world. I know it's going to be well-received. You're going to get great reviews. And just to talk you up a little bit, Stonemeyer Games is, is no slouch in, a, in the publication area. You guys, I believe on Board Game Geek, you guys have three in the top 100 right now, which is incredible. Am I wrong about that? I think those three happen to all be in the top uh, 25 at last I checked. So it. Like Alex said, our goal is to bring joy to people, and uh, <laughs> the rankings are one way to indicate that we've brought some joy to people. So I'm, I'm happy to see that. You absolutely have. We thank you guys so much. Alex, Miles, Jamie, thank you for joining us. Uh, we really enjoyed our time together, and uh, I think uh, everyone's going to enjoy this. So we will talk to you guys next time. Until then, hail Reaper. Hail, hail Reaper. Reaper. Hail Reaper is a production of Catacomb Party. Thanks to Pierce Brown for creating this universe. And thanks to all the contributors who make this show possible. We were engineered by Joshua Ramsey, with editing and sound design by Math Ardelion. The bit of music you're hearing right now was written and produced by Sahab. If you enjoy what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. And follow at HailReaperPod on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for updates, giveaways, and more. You can support the show directly by joining our Patreon community where we issue monthly bonus content, exclusive artwork, and hang about with all the howlers in the Discord. Visit patreon.com slash hellreaper to learn more. This is Broadcast signing off. Until next time, hail the gory damn reaper. Oh, my God.